You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Apple lets Facebook and Google out of timeout. Russia decides it would like access to Apple data because, you know, it's Russian law. Social networks take down large numbers of inauthentic accounts. Fancy Bear is snuffling around Washington again, already with some spoofed think tank sites. A shape-shifting campaign afflicts ads. China sees co-op DDoS attacks. An Adhar breach hits an Indian state as the SBI bank recovers from a data exposure incident. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, February 1st, 2019. Happy Friday, everybody. Apple's timeout punishment of Facebook and Google was sharp, but soon over. TechCrunch reports that Apple has restored Facebook's enterprise certification and with it employee access to internal apps. The publication also notes that Apple has restored Google's enterprise certification. Google's employees can again access iOS versions of pre-launch test apps. Google's ScreenWise meter and Facebook research collected user data in ways Apple deemed violated its terms of use. The magazine Foreign Policy suggests Russia envies Mountain View's access. Roskomnadzor, Moscow's telecommunications authority, says it expects Apple to comply with a 2014 law requiring data collected on Russian citizens to be stored on Russian servers where it must be decrypted on demand should the security service require it. As much as they've struggled and continue to struggle with content moderation, social media platforms continue to have more success working against bots and people who are not whom they claim to be. Facebook this week continued its purge of inauthentic accounts. The social network has taken down more than 700 pages that were being directed from Iran, amplifying Islamic Republic state media content, and targeting audiences in the Middle East and South Asia. Facebook stops short of calling it an Iranian government operation. Patriotic activism is also possible. Twitter has been active against information operations as well, offering an account of 2018 election influence attempts emanating from Russia, Iran, and Venezuela. The company also took down follow-bot services ManageFlitter, StatusBrew, and Crowdfire, Twitter found all of these in violation of its automation rules. Fancy Bear, Russia's GRU, seems to have hit a prominent Washington think tank. 
Microsoft said Wednesday in a court filing that they'd taken down bogus sites spoofing the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS. CSIS has long studied Russian matters, and fancy Bear's interest in this particular think tank is unsurprising. Bears know where the honey is. Observers are throwing their hands in the air over this one, amid speculation that the operation is battle space preparation for meddling with U.S. elections. The 2020 election season starts far sooner than any sane person would like, but this is really early. It suggests to many that deterrence is either not working at all or that it's working imperfectly. U.S. deterrence has involved naming and shaming, lawfare, sanctions, and spooky direct messages to Russian government trolls, but these seem insufficient. The foundation for the defense of democracies in a midterm assessment of the current U.S. administration's security policies coincidentally notes how difficult it's been to deter Russian hacking and information operations and suggests that if such things continue, the U.S. respond directly in kind. And if they do, then look to the security of your Nintendo Switch, Mr. Putin. Researchers at the Media Trust report the discovery of adaptive malware that's hitting Alexa 500 sites. The security firm calls the campaign Shapeshifter 3PC. The Media Trust says it's worked through 44 ad tech vendors to afflict visitors to 49 premium publishers that rank among Alexa 500 sites. As attacks were detected and blocked, the campaign would shift to new ad formats, new delivery channels, and so on. Security firm NetScout reports a wave of COAP reflection amplification DDoS attacks. The COAP protocol is for the most part used by mobile phones in China, and it's there that the effects of the denial-of-service attacks have been mostly felt. But COAP is expected to come into widespread Internet of Things use, and as it does, the problem can be expected to spread with it. Another breach has compromised a large number of Adhar numbers from India's national identity system, over 100,000. In this case, it wasn't a centralized breach. Instead, the system the state of Jharkhand used to track the work attendance of government employees proved susceptible to scraping. TechCrunch reported that the exposed data, which were apparently left without password protection since 2014, included names, job titles, and partial phone numbers of 166,000 workers. Bad enough, but unfortunately the file name on the workers' photos that accompanied these bits of PII was simply the individual's Adhar number. The Adhar number, which over 90% of Indian citizens have, is roughly analogous to an American social security number, at least insofar as it picks out a single unique individual. Breaches of social security numbers are bad enough, although with all the breaches of the last 10 years, most Americans have arrived at a kind of learned helplessness with respect to their social security numbers. They don't like them being exposed, and there are disadvantages to their compromise, but unfortunately many, perhaps most, now feel that that particular horse has already fled the barn, and the social security number is no longer used as much as it once was to establish identity. It said right on the card that it wasn't to be used for identification purposes, although of course, inevitably, it was. Adhar is a more serious matter. You can use it, or alternatively your thumbprint, to prove your identity when you register to vote or sign up for some government service, open a bank account, or conduct any number of other transactions. The reasons for exposure aren't entirely clear yet, but it seems that Jharkhand left a lot of data flapping in the breeze. 
Just the way the state of Oklahoma recently did stateside, we observe. So don't get cocky, kids. Another exposure also hit India this week as the State Bank of India, or SBI, government-owned and the biggest bank in the country, left two months of SBI quick data exposed without so much as the fig leaf of a password to cover its shame. The information was sitting on a server in a Mumbai data center. SBI Quick is a customer-friendly service that lets people who bank with SBI to text or phone in questions about their accounts. Naturally, these communications held information better kept confidential. Phone numbers, bank balances, recent transactions, whether a check had been cashed, things like that. None of these, even taken together, amounts to what the dark web black marketeers would call fulls, but they can be damaging enough. One possibility is that even such partial information could be used to target people, particularly people with big bank balances, for social engineering attacks. And there's even an adhar angle here, too. SBI, just a few days earlier, called out the UIDIA, the Unique Identification Authority of India, the government agency that oversees the adhar system for sloppy data handling practices. So, gander, sauce. TechCrunch reports that SBI has now secured the previously open database. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research for the Sands Institute. He's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's great to have you back. Um, today we wanted to talk about the effectiveness of block lists. What do you have to share with us? Yes, yeah, so a block list is something that 
I'm often being asked about uh, with uh, our system with the Shield and you know, Storm Center, uh, we are collecting a lot of uh, data about IP addresses, and of course, uh, some of that data indicates that IP addresses are not behaving the way they're supposed to. Same, of course, uh, for domain names and the like. And what I've found over the last years is that block lists, the way people typically implement them are not really all that useful, in particular the way sort of a lot of the web traffic works these days. Hmm. And we publish a very short block list, just the 20 entries of the 20 nastiest networks, if you want to call it this way. But even there, we often do see some false positives. And the other problem is that the attacks that you really worry about, they use very flexible IP addresses. They change their source addresses quite a bit. So really not that much use in spending a lot of time and effort in implementing block lists. Now, what about uh, if you're trying to block something like Shodan? Yeah, so Shodan is this search engine that enumerates the Internet of Things and we have actually done a test with that recently. One of our STI graduate students uh, did a research paper where what he looked at was whether or not being listed in Shodan actually makes a difference when it comes to the attack traffic we're seeing. And we didn't really see a correlation there. Hmm. Now, one thing we did see, however, is that the amount of traffic that you're sort of blocking your firewall that comes from researchers like Shodan, that's actually quite substantial. Not a lot of different IP addresses that they're using, but it can be sort of in the 20, 30% range if you're just looking at the number of packets that you're dropping at your firewall that are caused by research scans like Shodan. There are a number of other search engines like that. We also noted that a lot of the published uh, block list that you find for systems like Shodan are quite incomplete. They use a lot more systems to do their scanning than is actually sort of commonly being published. Hmm. So is this a matter of uh, perhaps a block list not being the most effective uh, place to use your time and energy? Correct. Uh, like, yes, it blocks some attacks, but are these really the attacks that you worry about? Uh, for the most part, what you find in block lists are things that uh, are sort of these common run-of-the-mill scans, and if you're vulnerable to them, you probably have other problems. The other issue is always the false positive issue. Like, we publish, for example, a list of uh, crypto coin mining pools, and that's sort of a useful list in the sense that Crypto coin miners, well, they're a very common infection uh, tool. And uh, so seeing outbound connections to these crypto coin mining pools may be an indicator that you are infected. The problem here is that a lot of these tools, for example, now hide behind networks like Cloudflare. And once you're blocking Cloudflare IPs, well, you're also blocking thousands of other uh, websites that are associated with Cloudflare. So, again, your, your risk of false positives is rather large. Hmm. The way I kind of like people to use these lists is, the way I put it is, you know, color your logs, add color to your logs. So, instead of blocking, just have tools that add automatic notes uh, to your logs saying, hey, this may be a crypto coin mining pool. So, and then you can manually check and make sure uh, whether or not the system is infected or not. Hmm. All right, it's good advice. Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. 
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Daniel Fagella. He's the founder and CEO of Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, a market research firm focused on the implications of artificial intelligence in business. He believes that the most important ethical considerations of the coming years will be the creation or expansion of sentience and intelligence in technology. Generally speaking, AI is seen as kind of the the meta umbrella under which machine learning sits. Now, a lot of people will argue that machine learning is the only thing that's actually AI. Today, a lot of PhDs, and we interview a lot of them, um, are, are of the belief that, that it sits under the broader umbrella of AI and that there's a lot more vistas to explore under uh, the, the broader domain of AI. Old school AI was kind of baking human expertise into a bunch of if-then scenarios to mm-hmm. hopefully shake out you know, some kind of a, a pachinko machine decision that a human would, would make as well. Uh, machine learning is more hurling a million instances at a bunch of uh, nodes in a neural network to get that network to pick up on patterns and determine what image is cancerous or what tumor images are cancerous or non-cancerous or what pictures have a stop sign or don't have a stop sign, etc. So uh, the dynamics are changing, but broadly in terms of the two terms, those are good ways to understand them. Now, one of your focuses is the ethical considerations of these technologies. Where do you see us headed there? At the highest level, unabashedly, my, my interest is in sort of the grander transitions of AI in, let's say, the next 30 to 50 years, where I, I think we're going to come up with kind of some post-human transition scenarios, whereby we have certainly hyper-capable and intelligent machines, but potentially also exceedingly self-aware machines uh, by maybe, let's say, 2060 or so. Um, and that if we were able to replicate, you know, sentience and, and legitimate general intelligence in machines, the, the ethical ramifications of whatever is after people uh, is astronomically important. Just like uh, the, the Earth has a lot more moral weight to it because there's humans here as opposed to, let's say, just amoebas or, or crickets. Uh, the, the Earth will have a lot more moral weight when it has astronomically uh, intelligent uh, AI entities and sort of how we how the transition beyond humanity occurs, I think, is the, the great concern. But when we speak about these things to business and government leaders, it's a lot more about algorithmic transparency. How do we know these decisions are being made correctly? Responsibility. Who's going to be responsible when this machine does something that could harm people or negatively affect people? So it's more about practical applications of individual use cases. Well, you know, I, I think back to, uh, I guess, the 80s in the early days when we had things like uh, there was a program called Eliza that would uh, simulate being a, um, a therapist for you. And basically, like you st- said earlier, it was a bunch of uh, if-then things. It would parse your language and just keep on feeding you questions. But you know, every now and then it would shoot something back at you that would sort of make you sit up in your seat and go, oh, wow, you, you just referred to something from earlier in the conversation. 
Um, and it was certainly we've come a long way since then. So I guess I'm curious, where do you think we are in the evolutionary pathway towards um, eventual or, or would you say inevitable sentience? So we've polled three dozen PhDs at a clip about the emergence of self-awareness in, in AI on a number of occasions. Um, the most recent bigger poll that we did on that topic uh, had kind of the biggest lump in the bar chart uh, happen in like the, the 2065, kind of 2060 range. Whenever that day does come, Dave, it is sort of the grand crescendo of moral relevance. So when we when we do broad polls across a swath of PhDs who've been in this space for, you know, as long, if not longer in some cases than, than I've been on the earth, you know, we see lumps there. You know, the coming 50 years, maybe, uh, this is sort of a potentially reasonable supposition. Pardon, I don't, I don't know if this is a, a naive question, but when that moment comes, will we know? Yeah, that's not a naive question by any means, Dave. I mean, it's a perfectly reasonable question. I will be frank. I think that it is a screaming shame. I put it way up there on the furthest distal issues with the human condition that we don't firmly understand sentience enough in terms of what it is, what constitutes it, how it emerges. Here's the deal, man. Here's the deal. Things aren't morally relevant unless they're aware of themselves. If you break your computer right now, just shatter it on your knee. That's going to be kind of annoying because someone worked hard to build that because you're going to have to go somewhere and get a new one. But whatever, you just go recycle it. But if you do that with a dog, you will be fined and, and, and find maybe a lot of money and maybe you know be relegated to have to do some therapy or something. If you do that to a child, then you may just go to jail for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the more self-aware, the more rich and robust the, the internal experiences of an entity are, the more moral weight it has, and we don't know how that arises. So what constitutes things that are morally relevant is predicated on this ephemeral substance of which we have essentially no understanding. That by itself, I, I just want to cry. And I think we really do have to understand consciousness and sentience itself. And I have some reason to believe that in maybe the coming two decades, we'll chip away a little bit more and more into what it is. Um, but you are right. We may never really get to that root or far enough to that root. And we may develop self-aware machines that are aware of themselves in, in ways that we just can't detect because we don't end up chipping away at that core science of what self-awareness is. I think there's nothing more important. It, it's a tough one. We, we may get to the AGI and to the self-aware AI before we know how the heck to measure it, and you are darn well right about that. I hope not, but you're right about that. So what do you suppose the implications are going to be? As these technologies continue to develop and become more sophisticated, how do you see our interactions with them changing? Stephen Wolfram, the guy behind Wolfram Alpha, mm-hmm. um, has this interesting hypothesis that there is a potential uh, singularity-like scenario whereby humans wholeheartedly like give up on their own volition because they work hand-in-hand with systems that recommend and coax and prompt them so well. So these systems will get you up on time, will get you feeling good, will prompt you to the right action, will set the right meeting, will recommend the product that is so much better than the one that you would have guessed at randomly. Like you're just gonna be so much more satisfied with the food it orders, with the movies it it suggests, with maybe the movies it creates, builds entirely new programmatically generated films just for your preferences beyond anything you could consciously ask for. But hyper tuned into to your preferences on a bunch of deep levels and that these systems like people may just completely bail on volition because these systems can prompt them and coax them through the world better than they can themselves and that that's like a potential 
trajectory for, for where we're going as a species. I'm not necessarily going to get dystopian here, but I certainly think that there's a pull in that direction. I mean, famously, you know, Facebook and these folks are, are kind of, you know, under fire now for better or for worse for, for their ubiquitous influence over, you know, our actions and attention and anxieties and, and whatever else. Um, and I think that that'll only become more and more embedded. I think we're at least going to be aware of, of these influences. I think, you know, you see GDPR and, and there is going to be some, some emphasis maybe around children and technology. I could see potential regulation around those things, but all in all in, in the coming years, I think we're only going to become more and more embedded until the machines are, are actually part of our thinking in a physical and literal sense, uh, which would mean chips. Uh, and, and, uh, and I think that's part of the big grand trajectory is, is when that kind of meld occurs. So I, I, I kind of see a, a melding in the metaphorical way that we have it now, only increasing, and then an eventual melding all the way into extending our cognition in the very literal, embedded with the neurons kind of kind of way in, in let's say, 20 years, uh, possibly even a little bit less. That is Dan Fagella. He is from Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.